Cowboys and Clinton and Rikers Island. All the penitents. Boomy, I'm a tuning, Geronimo, all the political prisoners. Site that you all can check out. It is Detroit is different. Detroit is different is the website that focuses on places and people throughout the city of Detroit that I think add to the culture. Uh, I feature different people such as a friend of mine, Yusef Shakur, who's an author. Um, I featured also Thornetta Davis, who's a singer. And I've also featured Jocelyn Rainey and Mike Willingham, who are visual artists. And today I'm featuring this whole month the entrepreneur, well actually it was May, I featured Ty Russell Perkins and how he's an entrepreneur and how that carries on the tradition of his family as well. And it's been something big, near and dear to him, near and dear to me because I come from a family of entrepreneurs too. So without any further to do, as I was gonna say, Mr. Russell Perkins is about to uh, get this introduction as we go here in full effect. Attorney Perkins, how you feeling today? All right, without any further to do, what I'm going to say is we're going to kick this whole thing off. Detroit is different style. A podcast, it is broadcasted to different people throughout iTunes, the iTunes network. So the first thing I want to start off with is family in Detroit. How long has your family been in the city of Detroit? Well, I believe my family has been in Detroit. Well, my grandmother on my father's side was born here. Or no, she was born in Alabama but moved to Detroit, I believe, in the 20s. Uh, so I believe um, our legacy or our, our, our predecessors, our grandparents, um, came to the Detroit area in the 20s. Uh, from that point on, we've been consistently here. My parents were both born in Detroit. Uh, I was born in Detroit, and all my brothers and uh, cousins and uh, family have resided in Detroit. We've s spread out and gone our different ways around the country, but. Uh, the genesis of the last two or three generations has been Detroit. Okay, and I always kick it off with what was the neighborhood that your family first lived in when they came here? Well, um, I know my dad was born on King. Okay. And my mom was born on uh, Del Mar. And uh, thus both North End locations. Mm -hmm. And um, so my grandparents and consistently, we what, I, what my brothers and I did this past year is that we actually repurchased a home where we grew up and our grandparents grew up. And my, my mom and my aunt and uncle had grown up. So it's something that we intend to refurbish and renew. And ultimately, one of these days in the next six months or a year, we'll actually have a first Friday there. 
So, um, you know, just something that maintains some kind of visual for my children, for other people who live in the neighborhood, that this is where I believe that it all started for me, for my brothers, and, you know, the rest of the people in my family. Okay, so you grew up in that North End neighborhood? I grew up on Del Mar. Okay. And, uh, and if on the fifth, on, I don't know what day uh, Father's Day is, uh, but on Father's Day we have um, a continuing tradition. We started on the day before Memorial Day, and we have a basketball tournament that completes itself along with a car show that is uh, a car show that will have um, basketball tournament and car show on Father's Day on the North End. Um, I think the address is 9721 Cardoni, but that'll be coming through the email and tell people to come out. It's something similar to this, but because it's in the neighborhood, there's not going to be any alcohol. You can bring your own, but there will be food, (laughs) there will be drinks, there will be uh, DJ Knuckles, and uh, there will be entertainment, and definitely entertain with the athleticism of some of our younger, more uh, vibrant individuals okay now you talk about younger and something like athletics i know you played a little bit of football did you play basketball and that's why you had the uh tournament uh, well everybody in the hood can play a little basketball but um can we ask your brothers if you if you're the best uh i think you know i did my thing well you know we didn't play we'd always play on the same team if we could so you know it's you you multiply goodness with greatness and so then, then, and then you're gonna get excellence so that's what we thought about when we pick, pick our just separate teams and okay. uh so that's uh that's one of the things that uh we looked at um as far as playing in a, you know it's an easy opportunity to play the sport all you need is a ball and you need a rim and kids can play and, it's, and that's one of the things i'd like to get to the point where we got kids playing baseball again um you know it takes a little bit more work takes a little more equipment a little more money, and you got to have a location to play. Um, but I, you know, I just look at different things as an opportunity to ha- have kids show their uh, whatever form of excellence it is, and hopefully that transcends transcends into excellence in other areas of their life. Okay, and as you talk about excellence, one of the main features this month was entrepreneurship. And this first Friday's kind of touches on that whole idea. You grew up watching your father as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, what was that like in the experience of growing up in a household with the entrepreneur as opposed to so many people grow up in a household, especially here, watching somebody go to work instead of making the work themselves? Well, you know, what I've seen over the years is us, you know, when I was younger, what I saw, and uh, I think my brothers and I saw, was a lot more people who were entrepreneurs. And over the years, I think that we, as uh, in our community, we've sort of relegated ourselves. And I don't mean it negatively, but I just think that entrepreneurship, if you listen to, read any financial education and things of that nature, a job is great, but you always have to have something to supplement it. You have to have something to give you that security, because as we know, there's no security in jobs. You know, you look at what you would historically there was security in government. And, I, and I'll use law enforcement to, as an example just because I have a lot of friends who have gotten in law enforcement, have retired in there, and they took those jobs and knowing that they make a little less money, but the benefits were great. Now look what happened when the city of Detroit declared bankruptcy. They go and t- they gut the, 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 the opportunities that they, that they thought that they were going to have in the latter years of their life for uh, the to pay debts down that weren't accrued by them necessarily. So you look at those type of things and 
having a job, but you always should have that supplement. You should always be looking at the, the next level and looking at a job as an opportunity to make a stepping stone or a stepping point into another um, foray. Okay, so what were some of the businesses that your dad ran that you remember? Well, my dad was a contractor. He owned a, uh, we had a, 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 a convenience store, um, out, a liquor store and convenience store over on um, Joy Road, right across the street from Herman Gardens Projects. One of the kids that used to, one of the kids that used to come in there was uh, Greg Mathis. Okay. Um, so, and uh, you know, the experience in learning how we operate, you know, one of the things how African Americans operate amongst themselves and how they operate dealing with people from other different cultures. You know, I'll give you an example. I learned something as a kid, I must have been five years old, and I couldn't understand, and I still don't even understand somewhat today. There was a store on the corner, Barney's. Barney's had a beer and wine license. They didn't have liquor. And our store had nicer coolers than Barney's. But the people would go to Barney's, and, and Barney was a Caldean guy, and they'd go to Barney's, and they'd buy his hot beer and sneak it into our store to try to exchange it for a cold one. I could never understand that. I could never understand it. I won't understand it today, but I, you know, I, I could say that it's perhaps a form of self-hate or something of that kind, but I don't even want to go there necessarily. I'm still trying to figure this out and, uh, and learn what it is that would cause people to think like that. You know, and I think that that's the interesting, fun thing about learning about human psychology, and that's one of the things that drew me to the law, is I'm going to deal with people one-on-one -on -one in most situations because they have to tell me their story, they have to tell me certain things that are intimate about themselves that are not going to be shared by anyone else, and it gives you an opportunity to dissect the human brain and understand how it works, why it works, and why people make the decisions that they do, uh, good, bad, or, or indifferent. So, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, looking at my history and how I grew up, how I got to where I am today. And, and, and you know, and still, even as a lawyer, that's my job, but I'm still entrepreneurial in spirit because I'm constantly, you know, we're working on different properties and different things like that. So, you know, that's something that I look at. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a lawyer by trade as a job, but there are other things that I want to do from an entrepreneurial perspective. Okay, and also just growing up in a household with an entrepreneur, even with my father, I would see different things like sometimes money's in the door, sometimes money's out the door, uh, floating budgets, knowing how money can kind of come in. I know it impacted me. How involved were you in your father's business as a child and then as you got older and just seeing that and how it impacted your household and your mom and your brothers? Well, one of the, one of the things that was interesting about us is that as – times change. Everybody knows how there was a decline and ultimate deterioration of the Herman Gardens area. So that really, my dad was had the insight and foresight to see that the end coming and actually sold the store. So when he sold the store, my dad by trade when he was a kid was a barber. So he ended sort of his working career as a barber and the past five or six years of his life, he stopped cutting hair and then came and ran my office which provided me the opportunity to understand or, or to learn from different people and learn from a guy who really had no fear, you know, who had, you know, who had seen it all. And the things that we as, at the time, younger people, and still consider myself fairly young, but seeing the things that I may worry about when you're at the latter stages of your life, you've seen it all, and you don't, you don't fret about the 
petty trifles of life, as he would describe them. So, you know, it was one of those things where he sold the business, went back to cutting hair, and but early on in the business, when we were kids, we had our own little candy store inside the store. So we'd buy our own candy. We'd buy. My older brother was more involved because he was, I'm five, five. He was 11 until maybe 11 until he was maybe 17. Mm-hmm. So maybe 11 until he was or until he was 16. But we would buy our own product and sell our own product, and you know we were allowed to profit from that. Um, that opportunity that we had in our own little candy store. Okay, and you talk about already being an attorney and then being an attorney with your own firm. It's a lot different, being an entrepreneur, having an entrepreneurial approach. Uh, What drew you into law where you said, okay, I'm going to have my own practice? Were you always knowing that you would have your own practice? Did you ever think you would work for another practice? What what was your thought process even engaging in it? Well, it's multifaceted. One thing is, you know, when I got out of law school, no one necessarily wants to hire you. I worked for the Court of Appeals when I was in law school. So when I got out of law school, um, I didn't go back to the Court of Appeals, and there were really no positions open. They weren't necessarily hiring at the prosecutor's office. I didn't really put in, I put in maybe one application. And not even an application. I had one interview, which was with a, a tax law firm or a tax consulting firm. And from that point, when I didn't get that offer, I was already, had met a couple of different lawyers, had learned how to go to court. Had, you know, it's kind of like one of these things Hans Massacoy told me. He says, and I told him, I said, I want to go to law school to become a businessman, to make me better at whatever business endeavor I wanted to pursue. He said, you should learn to go to court and learn the court rules and become comfortable in um, practicing before judges and practicing before audience. He says, because when you do that, it's kind of like riding a bike. You'll never forget it. So I did that, and, you know, initially you kind of like the opportunity that you have in seeing um, how you can change people's lives with just the swift decision of a judge. You know, like I said, it could be bad or good. You hope that it's a good thing for, uh, for your client, and hopefully that you can persuade people and you can persuade your client that it's a good thing for everybody. Um, but nonetheless, um, you go and you started going to court, you start picking up cases, and then you start feeling this obligation to, to your client base. And eventually, if you're successful, if people like what you say and like what you do, then you'll be contacted by other people. Eventually, you're going to need other people that you'd like to duplicate yourself in order to provide the service that you would like to continue on and benefit other people. And, and that's kind of how the way that we've looked at it. Um, there have been a lot of challenges along the way. There's still great challenges today. And, you know, the bigger the cases, you know, you always say the bigger the cases, the bigger the fallout, too. Mm-hmm. So you just hope there's no fallout. I mean, but, you know, that day is coming. That day of reckoning is coming. And you prepare for that. And, but you fight and you continue fighting because some of the cases, and I, I talk about this one case out of Oakland County. It was maybe 99. I lost the case. And I was complaining or crying to Judge Braxton. She says, don't worry about it, just keep on fighting. I keep on fighting, and the guy, my client tells me, it's right over here in the 5th District, 5th Precinct, and he kept on telling me, and uh, uh, Don Hollins and Tony Saunders would know about this, uh, but the guy was telling me he was working with some cops that were doing some, that he was doing some things. You hear these stories, you don't know whether to believe them or not. Somehow, um, 
And it led to a story, not to get into the actual story, but it led to him being in Oakland County. For whatever reason, the judge kept on giving me an adjournment. She said, this is the final adjournment. And I kept on filing motions and motions and she was denying him. And a week before he was to go to sentencing, he was going, getting ready to go to prison. A week before he gets to go to sentencing, five or six officers or four or five officers from the fifth district got indicted. Hmm. And that was enough to tell the judge that there must, there's probably some validity in what he's saying. We never got into whether it was true or not, but that was enough to keep this guy out of jail. Hmm. So from what was a, a, a point in time in which was a low point for me at the time, I remember sitting in my parking lot and uh, sitting in a, um, you know, my DJ's brother g gave me a car when I, you know, couldn't afford one. So I'm sitting in my Eldorado, and my brothers will remember this. I'm sitting in my Eldorado in the parking lot in Oakland County, uh, just hanging my head. Then I'm also praying that the car is going to start, <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> okay. and it's like a Friday morning because they go to, they have juries on Fridays in Wayne County. They don't have juries, mm -hmm. and I'm sitting in that lot, and you know, I actually did. The judge did grant me a bond and. He increased his bond, but let him get back out, even though he got convicted. And I just remember that low point, but then continuing to fight. By the end of the day, when he got out, he told me, he says, I know you're not giving up on me. I said, no. And from that point on, that was one of the inspirational things that, like, no matter how low it gets, no matter how bad it gets, if you continue the fight, you know, you never know what's going to be there for you. And sometimes you continue the fight, and it doesn't change. But you, you left everything you had on that field. You know, you left everything on that track, Joe, Joe Blount, right? We left everything, as Jerry Muskowski used to tell us, leave everything out there, everything in that 400 when you're running. If you don't throw up at the end of it, you didn't run it hard enough. But that's kind of the feeling that you want to have when you fight that particular fight. So, Okay, so what is it like, just the personalities as you take on this from an entrepreneurial approach with that fight, knowing that you're going to stay stay going because it's a lot of variables you're dealing with. It's mm -hmm. like like we were talking. I think most people look to call an attorney when they need an attorney. People don't call attorneys conveniently. That's like, you know, forward thinking. So in those dire situations, you got families like, oh man, what's going to happen to my dad, my mom, my children? And then you also have uh, the people that work under you. How do you keep all of those, you said psychology, how do you keep all those personalities in line, in check, and focused on, as I always say, the letter of the law sometimes, or all the time, is different than just what we have grown to become as logic. How do you keep people focused on knowing that legally we have to prove whatever we're proving? Well, first, if your first and foremost interest is, you know, and I always think about this, and some people think it's kind of hammy sometimes, but, you know, when I went to U of D, they called, they had this mantra called men for others. And, you know, being a man for others, you're always thinking about the best interests of your client, whatever your client may have done. And if you can't find your way to think that, and, and the people around you who work for you, as long as they're thinking about the best interests of every person that calls in there, um, that you'll at least focus on that common theme. And if everybody can join around that common theme, regardless of our differences, you know, there's certain different things, you know, that people react differently to, people respond differently to, they have a different aura about themselves, they have a different spirit about themselves, and it's unique to that particular individual. So if everybody can rally around being a man or woman for others, for that particular client, that's the basis. From that point, you know, you start thinking about 
wanting to advise, you know, what we'd like to get into our practice is not having clients, well, not necessarily meeting clients before they come in and need your services. It's kind of like everybody remembers, I know most people remember in this room because a lot of people are in law enforcement, the BMF indictment with the black mafia family that happened maybe six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And these guys were from southwest Detroit, mm -hmm. and they went out and made what some people would say a billion dollars selling drugs. And they went down to Atlanta, they started some record companies, and they became really big players in the game on a legitimate business side. When they got indicted, they hired lawyers, and you know, I was talking to uh, Steve Fishman. Steve Fishman at one point in time represent, represented one of them, and I said, well, Steve, how did you get that case? I said, because of your reputation. He says, no. He says, you get that rep. You get, the people call you in these significant moments in their life because they knew you before it happened. So these things that we do in the community that our family does and that the firm does, like the basketball tournament on, on the 15th, it gives people an opportunity to see. Sometimes people will see you, whether it be in the media or they see you in the courtroom. Sometimes they feel that you, they're not able to touch you. But if they see you in the community and they see you cooking for them and, you know, in my, man, in my mindset, in, in, in cooking for people, it's almost like in the Bible, washing the leper's feet. You know, it's like communion and things like that. So when people are able to eat together and share together, it is a different kind of spirit that comes with everything. So those people sometimes at those events, you know, you see the grandmother who's, you know, concerned about her uh, grandson or her, her granddaughter because, you know, we see that we see what happens in kids and we the kids may not even see it themselves what road they're carrying down because we've been there most of the people have been there and seen our friends or even ourselves go down that road and they just don't you know like when you, our parents used to tell us you know you don't know what you don't know what you're talking about and we or we would say you don't know what you're talking about but they do because it's the only difference between now and today one is the internet it makes things move faster and the difference is, this is 2015, rather than being 1975 or 1985 or 1995. That's the only difference. It's the same human psychology that's at work, you know. And so, getting out in the community is important, so that these people know you, and you start having them know you before the events arise, so that they they feel comfortable in sharing what might be something embarrassing, you know. Even if it's a not, a lot of times people associate that with criminal work. But a lot of business people have some very serious, urgent business concerns when they're trying to shut down your business because of a bad decision you made. And as a business person, it might be embarrassing to say, hey, I, I'm this big businessman, but I made a wrong, bad decision because I did this without hiring a lawyer and, and, and tried to do it on my own, and it could be an embarrassing moment. But if they know you before that, it's easier to talk about things that might otherwise be embarrassing. Okay, so even within that, that's just being kind, humble, and interacting with people. Um, how do you, uh, I would say, more so take those same characteristics in a city like Detroit where sometimes everybody can have their guard up just because sometimes people have their guard up in Detroit. It's a lot like New York at times with people. So how do you hop those hurdles? Well, you don't change. That's the constant that you, that you keep. And it's one of those things where, you know, I told a prosecutor and you know, I wasn't sure if they were cheating or not, but I told him, I said, you know something? I'm gonna tell you what my defense is because I'm so good that I, I don't have to cheat. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, it, it's, 
it's, it's one of those things, if you don't change and you keep that constant, um, you know, whether it's good, kind-heartedness, I like to think of spirituality, I think the, yeah. think of God as love and all those yeah. different kind of, kind of things. And if I keep those themes in my mind, it doesn't matter what mm-hmm. anybody else does. You know, okay. it's, it's kind of like, you know, a contrarian thought. How about that, Tony? Is that, that's all right. <laughs> I'm putting it, all right. 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 But you know, but yeah. Okay. But yeah, that's that's just you. I just okay. I just will still, as simple as the thoughts are, I think if you keep it simple and not make it complicated, it's better to understand either. And it's better mm-hmm. for other people who are watching you, because I just want to be an example for other people to carry whatever you know i want somebody to take whatever i've done and take it 10 times further okay you know and and, hey i want to work for them okay yeah so now now with that let's let's open it up to the floor i want to get three questions from anybody you can ask any question any questions on the floor because if if not then i'm gonna go straight to my cultural questions about music arts okay Thank you. Thank you. All right. I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I don't have my my other mic in the crowd. So I'm going to paraphrase that a little bit for the podcast crowd. Well, let me say one thing. And I I wish you had an opportunity. My mom's doing something tonight because I know we got pictures at the church tomorrow. So she uh, she wasn't able to come through. But really, she's the matriarch of the family. She's the oldest, you know, and she's really not that old. My mom turned 77 this year. And you know she's still catching the bus if she if no if she does, can't get her car uh, out the garage, or she'll walk to she'll walk from her apartment to our office. And she just did the you know one of these days that you know maybe we'll do one uh, first Friday at the office that's now finished. Uh, and she's responsible for all the decorations, all the design work. And she worked with my brother Sean, who Sean was the one who told me to go. You know he says don't he says you're trying to think on another level. Don't try to do this. Uh, ma- he said, don't do this mammy made. He says, go get an architect. You ain't no architect. Go get an architect. And it's probably one of the best things I could do. But it all starts with her and how they, um, you know, we would have, and, and, you know, I'll share this. You know, sometimes we didn't have lights or gas, but we went to Catholic school from the hood. And, you know, a lot of people would, would, would joke, like, by the time any trouble went down, we were just on our way home. Or by the time we got home, we'd be so tired from having to walk to, to the bus stop and walk home, and it just didn't phase them. You know, the fact that we, we were without at times because education was the one thing that they said that they can never take away from you. So, 
you know, I would like for her to have been out, but she's doing some things tonight. But I just wanted to say that, and I have to give, besides obviously giving kudos to God, but I, I actually, you know, praise my parents for, um, you know, doing what they did because it's only because of them that, you know, I have the insight or foresight or, or and willingness to take a chance to not be afraid and to have watched them go through, you know, heartache, great things, losses, and things like that, and just be unwavering in what their common theme was, which was get us out the house, get us into school, and then support us along the way. So, um, you know, I, I just have to say that. Definitely. And I'm going to paraphrase her no. statement a little bit in the sense of definitely proud, encouraging, um, and just getting to know. It's kind of what you just touched on, getting an opportunity to interact. And that's why I have this podcast, and that's why I wanted to start my website, Detroit is Different, because I feel that it's a lot of people looking to bring something, quote, unquote, new into Detroit, but I feel like it's a richness, a culture that already exists here. Um, we had a question on the floor. Oh, okay. Okay, do you do offshore banking? Well, what we do is, it depends on in what way you're talking about it, because that's a very, offshore banking, you know, some can interpret that as some kind of criminal activity, especially, no, I know that, but I'm saying in this age, if you're, if you're someone who is of Middle Eastern descent, or if you're of African descent, they could think that you're funneling, you know, because we deal with companies now that have money that's gone to offshore banks and that transfer of money in and of itself could be problematic as the way, you know, with the Patriot Act and all those different things. So, oh, yeah. Okay. Well, you definitely could be, we could definitely represent your interests. What, what, it, would what it would take, in, depending on the scope of the, and the size of the project and the size of the transaction, that will depend upon the nature and the size of the professionals that you would bring in there. Besides a lawyer, you're going to need an accountant. You're gonna, probably going to need somebody who's got an MBA. And those are the type of things that we would put. We, we do have some lawyers in our firm who do have MBAs um, and do have some accounting background. But also, you know, there's some other individuals and professional service individuals that we would retain for the purchase of assisting you. So, yeah, we would definitely take on a challenge like that. Oh, we definitely, we would, we could be the quarterback in setting that up. Yes, absolutely. So if you came to us and told us what you want, we could devise a, a, a plan on how to effectuate that for you. That don't make any sense. You know something, let me say something about the law. It's kind of like if it doesn't, you know, just because it's something legal doesn't mean that it's outside of your ability to understand if something's right or wrong. It's kind of like, what do they say? If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. If you don't feel comfortable about an opportunity that has been presented to you, and sometimes when they say, or not even sometimes, but it's just kind of like one of those things that say, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. So. I go back to that scenario that you offered. If they're in control of a, an account, then how do you cover or ensure whatever interest that you have or whatever interest you intend to gain out of this? Exactly. So, you know, that's not something that really benefits you. And, you know, 
to that extent, you would need. Can't. Well, that's a good thing. What? What? What I was what I was gonna uh, say this two things. I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase the question again. It's an artist in the audience right now that was asking about offshore banking. The first thing is what's offshore banking, and why do you need an attorney for it? Well, what and having the opportunity to talk to this young lady. You know, it's it's more than just offshore banking. I mean, offshore banking is just doing banking in either the Cayman Islands and usually areas that uh, do not have um, necessarily have treaties with the United States. That you know, because what happened with with Switzerland? Mm -hmm. Switzerland was a place that people who had who were well healed could take their money and put it in those accounts and save money on taxes and things of that nature. But offshore banking typically is those smaller countries that are adjacent to the United States or adjacent to some coastal area and not necessarily landed. Um, you know, you talk, like I, I mentioned the Cayman Islands because um, that's a place that really is owned by one of the Dart brothers who has gone down there and totally renovated that place after the hurricane about 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. That's what they do. So, so to the extent that you're asking about offshore banking, what you're really talking about is a transaction. At the heart of it, you're talking about a transaction. Let's keep it simple. You've got some art, they want to pay you some money for it, but it sounds like they want to get your art and control the money. That don't seem right at all. Well, you never know. You know, something just take somebody would take your lawyer with you. I'd love to go okay. to Dubai. You know, so, so, you know we so, can yeah. we can work that out. Do yeah, we, so don't worry about that. Do we have a another question? Yes, sir. Okay. The things that we're seeing on the news, I mean, obviously, we don't get the full story, and I think um, some of the innocents that, uh, some of the victims that they died, um, we never get to hear the full story, but what's your take on that, and have you seen anything, or had any cases like that? Okay, I'm going to paraphrase that question first, and uh, just so that people can hear it on the podcast, that's why. All right, so, and then also... I agree. I'm going to run with it a little bit further. I'm going to say that, in my opinion, America hasn't necessarily been that fair to black people historically in the justice system. So um, that's the first thing. But right now, just due to the way information is traveling through the Internet, it's becoming more prevalent even in the media's eyes. So uh, how do you feel about that? Have you taken on cases like that? And what do you think people should do to protect themselves against uh, police brutality? Well, I, I have an opinion about America in that I think America is a dying country. 
I think is a dying country because you have the relics of our society. The, and I mean, typically the older people, but they've also infected some of these younger people um, that, you know, these racist ideologies and thoughts, they continue to permeate our society mm -hmm. and, um, you know, into a form of ignorance that causes and sort of metastasizes and presents itself in people dying and things of that nature. But, you know, I'm still, even though it's dying, I still don't think that we're dead. And I'm still, you know, the constant um, uh, optimist. I believe that there, you know, we're just waiting for that opportunity because, you know, you can ask your parents and ask your grandparents. It's still better today than it was, you know, from the, from the situation. I always make a joke. I say, you want to know how good it is? Because what happens is we're going to have a world of brown in a minute anyway. You know, go to Macomb County. You know what I'm saying? And it's just, you know, I, it's, it's interesting to see. And, I, you know, I, I like to see the intermixing, uh, the intermingling of different cultures. Because my dad used to always have uh, a theory. He says, you know, there are black people that don't like white people. There are white people that don't like black people. There are Jews that don't like black people. There are Jews that don't like white people. He says, you know what that is? He says, that's white people that don't know black people, black people that don't know white mm -hmm. people, Jews that don't know black people. And essentially... The more you get to know another person yeah. to whom you're not familiar, you recognize they want the same thing you want. Exactly. Now, we have the exceptions, and we, you know, Judge Braxton sees a lot of them, you know, and they're the exceptions, and uh, Amy Fowler and Dan, uh, they see a lot of them, the exceptions of this. There's some people, you know, and I always think about Richard Pryor. A lot of people remember that. Remember, he says, why'd you kill the people in the house? He says, because they was home. He said, thank God for penitentiaries. You know, there's some things that we need institutions for those people, but not everyone. But, you know, as it relates to um, have I had, handled, well, a lot of people might remember, I took a little bit of flack about a month ago where we didn't fire. I'm a city attorney in Highland Park. And, uh, um, uh, the um, Mr. Melendez. Yeah. Mr. Melendez was an officer who was caught on tape. He worked part-time for Highland Park. He worked part-time for Inkster. And he was caught on tape viciously beating this guy. And uh, at the time, one of the things that Inkster, once they got the tape, it took two months to tape to come out. And because uh, it happened in February. We only were exposed to it maybe at the end of April. The media only got a hold of it at the end of April. And so eventually they came to us and said, aren't you going to fire him too? Well, we knew that the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office had contacted us and told us that they were preparing a warrant. And I'm not one for knee-jerk reactions. I always think, and if you ever see me in the media, I'm always one who will wait to see and let the dust settle and let everything work itself out rather than reacting. Because that's the problem, I think, you know, I, I think the difference in some of the conservatives and liberal thought processes in the country. Conservatives plan, the liberals react, you know, and that's why they get the different responses that, you know, conservatives sometimes will get. They'll get a better response out of whatever agenda that they have. So I didn't, um, we didn't make the decision to fire this individual until Miss Worthy issued the warrant on him. Once he issued the warrant, it was, you know, it was easy to do at that point. So, you know, I, I, in handling that, I still believe in due process. I still believe that in persons, and I was a, an attorney on a case in which Mr. Melendez was charged federally back in 2003. So I knew some of the things that he had been accused of, but I also knew he had been found not guilty. 
So, you know, I, I also have to look and appreciate and trust the system. And I say that, trust the system, and a lot of people say, well, as a black man, how do you say that? But you still have to, it's our system. And what I mean by that is if it's our system, we have to take all the benefits of that system, like go vote. You know, and it's just one of the things, I know some judges, oh man, it's just, you know, go sit on a jury, don't avoid the duties and responsibilities for, you know, as much as I talk about the United States as a dying country in the sense that we're killing ourselves with the, sometimes the hatred that we have, but it's still the best thing, hey, go somewhere else. It's the best thing that's got going out here, you know. It's the best thing going. So, um, but I think that one of the things that's a great thing about where we're at is at least today we know about it. You know, with social, with the, with the computer age, with the opportunity of technology, these are things that would have been urban legends. Oh, I heard about John that got beat up by the police. Now we see it. So then, and now seeing it, it's just like how the civil rights movement in the, in the 60s was. It was the, it was the when, when that sheriff sp uh, sprayed that water on those people, women and children, and that was disseminated throughout the rest of the world, and people were going over in Vietnam and telling people that you can't be a communist, and they say, hold on, you were telling us how we should live, and, and it shocked the consciousness of the rest of the United States throughout the rest of the world. So it caused that type of dissemination of information. Now that we have camera phones and things of that nature, you know, it's getting out there. And so the fact that we know is a positive. So let's take that positive and start doing things. Let's start, you know, supporting people like Ron Scott, who, who is a, a person who's against police brutality. You know, and sometimes people say, oh, that guy's doing this. But things that are positive, sometimes whether we agree with their particular agendas, we have to support those institutions in order to see them get to the point where they can espouse different, change views, change, change uh, ideas, and, uh, and also assure people down the road, and, it's, and it's, it's happening now. You know, one of the things, and I'll, I'll leave it at this, a lot of people dogged out Obama. He didn't go into Missouri and do anything. But see, as lawyers, and I think I had this conversation with Dan, as lawyers, what he did was phenomenal. He didn't say a word about it. He let those folks do what they did because that's one instance. That was one instance of what happened, that young boy died, and probably unnecessarily, that guy probably should have been indicted, all of those things. But what he did was he sent in the Justice Department with Eric Holder. And after a full investigation, what did he come out? He says this systemic, this department is infected with a systemic uh, racial overtone. And so that is deafening to a department. You know, so that kind of referendum that he put out there was more, uh, I think it impacts society more. And it seems subtle, but it's those subtle things. It's kind of like a ship moving through the night. But once that ship starts moving in that direction, you can't, to change that trajectory takes so much energy that you know, that's what he did, and he moved that ship in a direction. He also then, when he went into Cleveland, and he's done the same thing. So those are the type of things that, and I think that this new attorney general, whew, she's something else. You know, she's, she's really gonna do some things. Just how I saw how she approached some of those uh, older conservatives in the Senate you know, she started off talking about what her parents did in the civil rights, and they backed up, and they really couldn't say anything. But it still took them 100 and some odd days, 170 days to confirm her. Mm -hmm. So, but nonetheless, you know, I think that, you know, we're still making progress, 
And, you know, we have setbacks, just like in any business endeavor, or, you know, if we categorize it as a business endeavor. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I just, I still think, uh, like I said, I'm an optimist. Okay, we have two more questions, and then I'm gonna ask you the last question, and we can wrap. You had a question? You know, and, and I'm not an expert. Let me, oh, let me, go ahead. Let me Please, uh, paraphrase that again. Um, you were, it was kind of like that's along that same line, just more so talking about is it the social media nowadays? Uh, is it uh, that more of the information gets out there? Uh, I'm going to speak just from my, I love Detroit's history, especially Detroit's black history. And uh, a lot of people kind of don't talk about, especially in the shadows of right now, people talk about the uh, right now after 40 years of, you know, Detroit is coming back. And it just also happens to be like, those are 40 years of like black leadership taking on a lot of those political positions. And a lot of those political positions started in what caused a lot of what is, depending upon what you want to say, riot or rebellion by many different police forces, especially in Detroit. Like, so you have like the big four, stress, uh, and different police units that uh, targeted black men primarily and with different forms of just outright brutality. And these were like what Attorney Perkins said. So you would hear about things like the big four. And one of my mentors, Chokwe Lumumba, who was an attorney that passed away last year, and he was a mayor in Jackson, Mississippi, he was always, one of those people into those fights. And it was a lot of other attorneys, uh, Ken Cockrell Sr. Um, and a lot of this history of like what exists, but th it's a very tough job to be a police officer. Sometimes I think it's maybe one of the toughest jobs you can have, especially if you're in some of the communities. And the sad thing is the face I believe and then I'm gonna have Attorney Perkins speak to this, the face of crime that most people see, black, white, or whatever, just due to media perception, is a black male such as myself, but especially a black male, and even as we get into the artistry and the culture of hip hop culture, that can kind of permeate some of these same ideas. So as these messages you know, are flying through people's minds, sometimes that image is imposing too. So uh, I definitely think that it's always existed. Right now the information can travel a lot more, but there are certain things culturally in our society that add to that perception too, that add to the fear of the black man as well. So I would like Attorney Perkins' perception on, do you think that it's more today or do you think it's just more so that we get the information faster through our devices, primarily the camera phone? Well, I, I, I'm not an authority and so I'm just giving an opinion as an individual, as, as everybody would have an opinion here. Um, but I believe that these things have been going on. I just think it's the opportunity that we have to, um, to collect this information and record this information and codify it in a way that, it, 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 so that we could share it and this outrage and share the shock, the pain and the anger amongst ourselves. Um, 
but I, I think it's it, it also you know John Royal he's the um, president of the National Lawyers Guild and National Lawyers Guild are lawyers that go fight causes um, you know we I, I'm a person that sort of watches some of the um, uh, some of the protests as what I am and I'm, I'm an observer I don't take part in the protests but I'm an observer to ensure that people's rights aren't violated he's a president of that organization for the local Detroit chapter and I remember a conversation that I was having with him and you know he's a he's a big-time Democrat as well as I consider myself a Democrat too and we we're talking this is before 2012 or in 2012 and I, we were talking is around August and you know it was before the um, what was that was that 49 percent or 51 percent that uh, Romney said what was what was it that he said what number that he said talking about the people that uh, 47 percent yeah so it was before he you know when he you know it's always something major that people did it's just like John McCain when he said on September 15th that the that the markets and the economy and the economy is fundamentally sound and then the next day or the day after we dropped 3,000 points in the Dow and continue to drop you know those are the significant points in time in which a campaign has changed but before that we were having a conversation and he says I really think Obama's got a real challenge and I don't think he's gonna win and I said well why would you say that he says listen he says it's kind of like you see the relics of society and he's called it like he he uh, um, compared it to um, the fireworks and he says and, and I didn't know where he was going with this and he says you know you got an older white establishment that's still in control of this country from a financial perspective from an ability to change voting blocks and redistrict communities so that it's uh, disparately um, representative of, it's not representative of what the communities that, that it's intended to serve. He says, and so they're still in control. He says, you know, and these people recognize that their reign is ending, their, the end is near. And he says, you know, one, and he says it's kind of like the end of the fireworks. And what did he talk about? You know, at the fire, end of the fireworks, it's that huge crescendo. You know, it's the last burst, the huge burst that you see. And that burst is kind of like a burst of what he described as a burst of hatred. You know, a burst of if you know that you're dying and if you know that your your end is near and you're trying to do everything to preserve what it is that you have and you'll do anything in that fight. And he just believed that that fight was stronger than the fight of the average, you know, of the, of the 53 percent. And it really wasn't. And fortunately, it wasn't. But, you know, and I, I understand what he means by that, where he says that, um, you know that these this older establishment looks at the end being near because you know it's going to be better for our kids you know and, and you know something if you don't believe that then it's kind of like you might become a self-fulfilling prophecy I'd like to become a self-fulfilling prophecy in a positive way so that's kind of how I perceived it and you know a couple of days later you know Romney said what he said and about a week later I saw John Romney says nah I think we're pretty good now. So, okay. you know, <laughs> look at what happened. All right, this is the last question from the floor, and then I'm going to have my last question, and then we're going to wrap. What's the question? I just want to know, have you
Okay, I'm going to, uh, like I say, I'm going to restate the question, and then I'm going to throw one of my favorite Detroit black history facts. She threw in John Conyers. She, it was a question about reparations. What's your opinion about it? She mentioned Claude Anderson, uh, black labor, white wealth. Uh, also, John Conyers was always pushed, but that was pushed really by reparations Ray Jenkins, yes. who uh, actually is named right there on that street, right in what's now known as Paradise Valley. So what's your opinions on uh, reparations? Well, um, I think it's a great idea, and I think that it's something that every other ethnicity has been entitled to. See, see, here's the problem, though. We represent a larger percentage of the population to the extent that they feel that they, you, and as everybody watched Dave Chappelle, did you remember Dave Chappelle's show, he had reparations mm -hmm. and what we did with reparations and things, and, and he made a spoof out of it. Mm -hmm. But, and, and my dad used to always have this theory. He says, if you take all the money out of the world, it's, it's nothing to fear but fear itself, but if you took all the money out of the world and gave everybody a million dollars, it wouldn't be too, too long before it's right the way it is right now. But, you know, reparations, I think, is something that we continue to, you know, to, to you know, to argue for. And sometimes you, things that you want bad enough, you have to take. And see, what I mean by taking is, you know what the problem I have sometimes with my community? We don't put our money where our mouth is. You know, some, you know, some, and, and some of, you know, I look at some of my friends who, who, um, you know, um, that I went to college with and, you know, we, I see what they do and I, and I, I join them in some of these causes, but I see what they do and, and I don't necessarily say it's, a black or white thing, but you are, I'm, I'm around more black people, so I see our, our unwillingness to take $10 out of our pocket. Because let's say, for instance, if we, if, we, if we had this meeting every month and took $10 or $50, and some people may not have it, but they put something in there. And, you know, some, somebody could put, rather than make people feel um, um, inadequate about them not having it, Put it in an envelope and everybody drop an envelope. Somebody might drop a penny in there. It's kind of like, you know, what did Jesus say? The lady who dropped a penny in there gave more than everybody because she gave everything she had. So, you know, you have to think about that com communal concept and taking that money. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I always go back because, you, you, you know, I'm a product of my parents. And, you know, I used to think my dad thought it was a great idea for the preachers in the city to get together and create a credit union and create their own individual bank and he says you know the problem is to see that he says the problem is they can't find out who gonna be chief yeah. you know what i'm saying so you know that's what the problem is but so you know reparations is a good idea but you know we have to start funding the causes that we have and need it's just like you know i, I go in and i tell people what it's going to cost to fund a legal battle and they shake their head and they don't see the value in putting that kind of money towards it but yet when they come back to you to try to fix it on an appeal, it's going to cost 10 times more, and then the opportunity for success is 100 times less. So, you know, they just don't see these things, and we start, have to start educating ourselves and freeing ourselves to giving to causes that we believe in. Because, you know, it's, you, know it's, you say what you want about the Republican Party, but they know how to raise some money. 
You know what I'm saying? You say what you want about the Tea Party. They're a small section of, of the greater, of this whole country. But look at the type of influence that they've created. They've even created fear in the Republican Party to act, to act crazy. You know what I'm saying? Because some of their thoughts are crazy. But at the same time, you've got to respect them in the fact that they put their money where their mouth is. And it only takes money because it takes lobbyists. It takes different things. And, it, you know, with the, defender, with the defense bar, they finally made a decision to hire a lobbyist. And instead of going and fighting these fights piecemeal and things like that, they hired a lobbyist. And they take that money and they spend it on a lobbyist who's, you know, you find somebody who's a well-heeled lobbyist who's willing to take a little less money, but they recognize this is a good cause that they're fighting for, and they've made changes. You know, it's, it's, it's no secret formula. So, you know, reparations, like I said, it's a great idea. I think it should be granted. And I, but at the same time, because of the precise of who would take in that particular, they, they, they think, oh, it could just never happen. But in the meantime, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, if it's something that's important to you, you keep on fighting for it and get the people around you to fight for it and put your money where your mouth is. Because you can hire the people and organize yourselves to force, you know, I think theoretically, you can force the issue of reparations to be a real issue. Right now, it's just an intellectual concept of something that some, you know, small section of the people think that we should be entitled to. But historically, everybody who's been treated far less worse than the African-American has, has, has been. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, some, they, what did they say? It was a 60-minute story about 10 years ago. And, you know, 95% of the people who get welfare are not indigent. They're corporations, they're farmlands, and different things like that. So that small slice of that 5% is the only thing that they've been affecting over the past 10, 15 years when they've been taking welfare out of the homes and things like that. And, and not to say that it doesn't need change, but again, you know, these are things that people don't know. If you don't know and you don't really have somebody who's here to tell you, and the only way you can get somebody to tell you if you don't learn it on your own is to hire somebody. Okay. And we close out, and you can listen to this on Tuesday. I post this up on DetroitIsDifferent.com. If I get your email address, I can email this to you. I close out with the last two questions. The first question is always how the music that's going to start this off. If you were going to fight a heavyweight boxing match, what music would you walk out to? Tupac. Which song? I don't know. I think I think the last album, what was the album? When Machiavelli? He, Machiavelli. The last one where yeah, he was alive. The, the, yeah, just, just from the from start to end, you could play that one and to play Machiavelli and you'd be done with it. Well, by that I'm time, by the time I get to the halfway point, the guy's gonna be knocked out, so then, you know, I don't have to listen to the rest of it. Okay, well, I'm gonna pick the last song probably Against All Odds. That's what I'm gonna pick. And the last question, if you could rename Woodward after any Detroiter, who would you name it after and why? Um, I, I would name it after Coleman Young. I really would, because I think that with the dismantling, I, I believe there's a, a wholesale dismantling of everything that he fought for and did mm -hmm. um, by what's going on, whether it be something to usher us into a new age, because we have to accept change. Because if you don't accept change, you'll get steamrolled by it. So I still think that what he did and what he represents to the community and being a fighter for community. Because, you know, a lot of things that are misrepresented by Coleman Young 
And, you know, where he said hit eight mile, people, th he, you know, they want to say that he was talking about white people. He was not talking about white people. He was just telling, you know, take that garbage and hit eight mile. Don't, I don't want it in Detroit. So, you know, those are the type of things that the media did to him, you know, because hold up. Let's say, for instance, you know Coleman Young's best friends was Hank the Deuce and, and, and Max Fisher. You know, and the last time I checked, they weren't black. You know, and those were his, and, and his best friend was a friend of my dad's who actually put me with Coleman Young, was a, a, a guy who died last year, Ed Robinson. And Ed Robinson, last I checked, he was a white guy too, you know, and he was a great mentor of mine. And that's the, that's the misnomer. And, and, and the, see, that's the ability when you, you don't control the media. And that's why you gotta, you know, you gotta purchase things like the Chronicle. You know, and, and, and really, not necessarily the Chronicle, but there are other things, because Chronicle takes some hits because they supported Engler too and all these other things. But, um, but you've gotta support streams of media that bring out vision, views that you want to have heard and that you believe in. Because it's not always gonna be the free press or the news or Channel 4, Channel 2, or Channel 7. Hence, that's you why know? I so, trade is different. So yeah, exactly, and, 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 and support this young man who, you know, I'm talking about energy, he brings it. You know what I'm saying? He chases me Thank down. You. you know, I know I'm hard to get a hold of. Yeah. And, you know, he's in my office waiting, even if it's a half an hour, 45 minutes, he doesn't even look at his watch. And I, and I don't have the goal to even look at mine because you know, I know I'm late. <laughs> but, you know, but it's, the, it's this type of uh, venue that we have to support. And when I'm talking about support, I'm not, I make no bones about it. I'm talking about financially. You know, that's what I'm talking about. You know, putting our money where our mouth is. You know, and actually he's got a concert coming. I'm, I'm plugging mm -hmm. him now. Yep. He's got a concert coming up. And, you know, I'm supporting him in mm -hmm. that and will continue to support him in that. And, you know, I've got, you know something? I have, there's a gentleman who comes by every month. And I have, um, I have three tickets, guest passes, um, that I don't know we'll, what we'll do tonight for the um, African American Museum. I have calendars at the end of the um, at the end of the room uh, from the African American Museum, and we also have I have 20 tickets to his concert to give away. How we do that, we'll determine throughout the night. But we're going to give them away, and he has plenty more to sell. But we have 20 tickets to give away, and I, I do have these three passes that I, you know, you have to go support this place. You know, what was hurtful to me was when they had a story about a year ago that Charles H. Rice Museum could potentially close. close down yeah. because it didn't have the funding. I say shame on us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Shame on us. So, yeah. you know, what we did was, you know, I took my little, and it's $100 for a membership, you know, and some people don't have $100. I get that. Yeah, but you can, you know, these are the type of things. We spend $35 or $100 on, on quick, yes. Mm -hmm. So these are the type of things that we have to support or, or else we will lose them. So, you know, and then the thing is, you know, you talk, go back to your question about reparations. I don't need it. You know what I'm saying? Because I know collectively we've got wealth. You know what I'm saying? Because if I, right here in this room, I got $10 million a year worth of income. Maybe five, okay, but nonetheless, you know, but you think about it in a collective sense, there's over a million dollars in this room. There is, you know, and that right there lets you know that you have an ability in just in this room to make changes on. If we have a common theme, we can make a change in that particular area. So, um, 
we'll figure that out how to get this out. And, yeah, uh, we, get we sure will. And uh, so I'm going to leave. Another hours, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> another hundred. And uh, we're going to work this out. And then I'm going to leave on this black history fact that I love to always talk. As I say, I love Detroit. I love Detroit history. But Detroit black history, I'm an enthusiast of. But the start of Charles Wright, and I found this out actually like about three months ago, that he started the museum actually as a bookmobile. And it started in a, in a, he started in a Winnebago. <laughs> so he drove from school to school to school to school so that black history could get to elementary school students. And this was the start of what eventually became a museum under his practice because he was a doctor. And then it became the museum that now is owned by CCS. And now it's the biggest black museum in the world. Oh, wow. Go. Oh, wow. I didn't even know it started there. But there we go. You learn every day. So thank you so much. Let me get your email address. You can listen to this podcast. If you haven't listened to any podcast, it's a lot of other people I interview. But Todd Perkins, the entrepreneur, you need to read about this man. Thank you so much. Give a round of applause. Thank you.